0: Furthermore, the equation e is equal m c squared. Uh, here's the
1: discovery. I'm going to make them laugh again.
2: Oh, Welcome, valuable PhD, to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. As always, you can join us for our next live show on our Facebook page, where we stream the show live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just go to facebook.com forward slash my cheeky scientist we also stream the show live every wednesday at 1 p.m eastern standard time on our cheeky scientist youtube page this is the radio show for phds who want to excel in industry if you want to learn more about cheeky scientist or our program the cheeky scientist association you can go to phdsgethired.com just enter your name and email address and we will send you all of our free materials about transitioning into industry What is the Cheeky Scientist Association? It is the world's largest training program for PhDs by PhDs that includes a complete blueprint of how to transition into industry and a private job referral network only of PhDs in industry and transitioning into industry. If you already have an industry job or if you want to learn more about developing your business acumen for industry. You can learn about our Scientist MBA Advanced Program at phdsgethired.com. We have another great show lined up for you today, so we're going to jump in now. We have a great show lined up. We're going to go through a show me the data section. I'm going to take care of a couple of housekeeping items first, and then we're bringing on Crystal Dilworth, who's going to talk to us about how she leveraged her PhD background, her STEM PhD background, to do a very interesting type of consulting that deals with communication and transferable skills that you have likely developed as well. And we wanna show you that you can use your PhD to do anything here. And we're gonna be talking a lot about communication, a lot about building consensus, a lot about transferable skills. We're gonna be bring on Jack O'Sullivan as well, who has a PhD background, is now working in technical sales, He has a great transition story to share, and again, we want to show you that with your PhD, you can do whatever you want. Before we bring our special guests on, though, we like to do a special section that we call Show Me the Data, and the team member who makes this possible is Jeanette McConnell. How are you, Jeanette? Hello. I'm good. There we go. Good to see you. Yeah, you too. Nice bow tie. Green today. It's very—it's a, it's a one-color bow tie. So you're serious today. This must very be serious. serious. Yeah. This must be serious data. Okay, let me um, open up to show me the data section. I was really excited to talk about uh, today's data because I think it's very—it's aligned with two things: one, your job search, and two, with the interviews we're going to be doing later here. So I'm going to describe what this data is for everyone listening to us by audio only, and then Jeanette, you can walk us through what the conclusions are and what we're actually showing here because Jeanette's much smarter than I am. All right. So the key attributes employers seek on students' resumes. This is from the National Association of Colleges and Employers. And what are we looking at? We're looking at these attributes, right? So what are employers looking for on resumes? So on the left column, this is a table, left column, we have attributes, right column, percentage of respondents. So Jeanette, the respondents are the employers in this case. Is that correct? That's correct. And it's just ranking the attributes that they want to see the most
3: yeah they had to see the ones they value the most. That was the question. What do you value the most on a resume
2: and what's number one?
3: problem solving skills
2: problem solving skills. so what does that mean though? like everybody can like everybody can solve a problem like how do I open this door? Like people can figure <laughs> that problem out. but what is this what are people really looking for when you when you say problem solving?
3: Um, they're looking to see if you can work through a problem from beginning to end without help, right? Can you take on a project and then hit those barriers and overcome them um, and just get to the solution without uh, needing lots of help along the way. I mean, everybody needs help sometimes, but like can you work through those problems? That's what sort of what it means. And I always used to say that getting a PhD is like getting a degree in troubleshooting. That is like what you do and that's what problem solving is.
2: Yeah, and I, I really like how you broke that down, a degree in, problem, in troubleshooting. Yeah, that's a good way to say it because there's this misconception where problem solving is just like, Oh, I can solve this problem. Cause I asked some, I'll just ask whoever for help. No, no, no. Employers don't want to help you. Okay. They don't want to babysit or micromanage. We hear about those words and we know that that is the exact opposite of what they're looking for. And that why, why do they like PhDs so much? is because you can be given a project and then you have this level of autonomy where you're able to figure out the solution on your own. And I, I always remember like my first year of graduate school, I would go to my PI to ask him every single question. I'd ask him a question and then he would just say, hold on a sec. And he would do a Google search on his computer, right? Like a protocol or whatever. And then he'd find the answer and then he'd tell me the answer. And I think he did this on purpose. And after like the, you know, the 50th time, I was like, wait a second. I can just do the search on Google. I could just pick up the phone and call. And it was like this massive aha moment. And as PhDs, we think that everybody has this skill set. They don't. And we forget to mention problem solving skills on our resume, et cetera. And we actually forget how, uh, how valuable it is because we reduce it down to being able to, you know, do what people tell us. That's not problem solving. It's really being able to figure out and troubleshoot on your own, like Jeanette said. So great, great, uh, analysis there. So, okay. What's, what's next? You have a couple items circled here. What are they and why?
3: Yeah. So I circled the ones that were about communication because they both fall into the top half, you know, more than 50%, more than of the employers are saying that those are really valuable. Mm. uh, Where communication skills, your written communication skills, uh, what is it, 80.3% of employers said those were very valuable to have on your resume, to make obvious through your resume. And then also um, communication verbally, uh, 67.5% of employers said that that was very valuable on a resume.
2: Yeah. And so think about things in terms of, projects that need to be managed, especially in companies that are, I mean, think of a company with a thousand people, right? I mean, you're gonna have some people working on site at one location, some people in the field, you're gonna have uh, virtual communication channels, direct communication channels. The key is communication has to happen quick and effectively, can you do it? As PhDs, you you do have written communication skills, verbal, but are you actually thinking to put that on your resume or are you just using like your big technical words? Okay, just putting these two things are crucial because employers they just want to know that hey you can problem solve to get stuff done on your own, but you can also communicate effectively when needed. I, I think that's the overall summary here. What are some of the other ones that are on the list here, Jeanette? That stick out to you?
3: Yeah. Well, there's a one about working on a team, right? Mm-hmm. That which is really important as a PhD. You have to work with people all the time, so we've got those skills, but it's important to highlight them. Mm-hmm. Um, leadership, right? Your strong work ethic. And then um, I think it's interesting too, if you look down a little bit, like less than 60% of people have technical skills on there. Right, so they're important. Clearly you need to have the right technical skills, but they weren't as important as your communication skills.
2: Yeah, and I I love that. So the the technical skills are below problem solving, Mm -hmm. team working with a team, communication, leadership, work ethic, initiative, detail-oriented, flexibility. So if you're thinking your technical skills are what are gonna get you hired, no. Don't forget those other, you know, uh, 10 or so items that are above it. Crucial. And there's a difference between having effective communication skills and being liked by everybody. I just wanted to point this out. Okay. What's at the bottom of this list? Tactfulness. Friendly, outgoing personality. So as PhDs, we discount ourselves because like, well, I'm not the friendliest person. Not everybody likes me. Okay. But are you capable? Can you communicate effectively? Can you get the job done? Doesn't mean you're a jerk, of course, but don't discount yourself just because you're not the most popular person in the room. What do you think, yeah, Jeanette?
3: totally, totally.
2: Thank you. Thank you for agreeing. Yeah. All right, so <laughs> with the popular opinion. All right, so the, <laughs> the second figure is the growing importance of social skills in the labor market. So speaking of social skills, and I really like these, these two figures coming up. So this is from the Quarterly Journal of Economics. Um, Who cares about the volume number, not me. Uh, The number of jobs requiring these skills. That's what this graph is showing on the y-axis. It goes from, well, I guess from zero up to 0.05 with zero, no, zero is in the middle. So you're looking at a negative 0.05 and a positive 0.05 above that. And then on the x-axis, it goes from 1980, right? So it's a date uh, to all the way to a little after 2010. And so you have four different colored Uh, Bars on this graph. One is blue. It's high social high math Uh, One is green low social high math One is red high social low math one is yellow low social low math. So you can probably uh, Understand just from that what we're looking at here But can you give us some context about this study Jeanette and walk us through uh, which bar is the highest and why?
3: Yeah, of course. So this study looked at the changes Well, this particular figure looked at the changes in the number of jobs in each of these categories from 1980 it's actually until 2012. Mm. And so they compared what they called high social jobs, right? Which is pretty obvious where you need social skills to do them like communicating well, right? Mm -hmm. Those sort of interactive skills are, are really important. And then high math, which. They gave a couple of examples of these, what they meant by this career. And they were like STEM jobs, yes. <laughs> like, like all exactly. these things that STEM, STEM PhDs are looking to get hired into these positions. Right? Yes. And so, um, at this graph, you can see that the blue line, which is those high social, high math jobs. So things where you need both your STEM expertise and the ability to communicate and be like effective socially through yes. the most where you're seeing um, a 7.2% increase in the number of those jobs, Yeah. right? And it's really interesting to compare that to um, the other like high math, low social, right? That's the other one that you would, as a STEM PhD that you would be targeting if you wanted a job where you didn't have to interact with people or something. Yeah. Don't really exist. But um, (laughs) that one only grew by 4.6%. Right. So you're seeing that there's more growth in these positions where you have to combine the two skills.
2: Yeah. And and let me just simplify. So both of the high social ones, whether it's high math or low math, have increased dramatically. Uh, Both of the low social ones, whether it's high math or low math, have decreased dramatically. Okay. So what does that mean for you? It means like you have to develop this social side of the equation. And mostly you just don't do it, not because you don't have the skills, just because you think it's sometimes it's beneath you or it's not important or you should be you know, honored just for your technical expertise. Sorry, it doesn't exist. Look at all the jobs that are really hot for PhDs now, medical science liaison, right? Regulatory affairs, um, medical writing, data scientists, all these positions require a heavy social component of working with internal teams and also being uh, very client facing to, you know, to get the data from the clients, from the KOLs, the key opinion leaders. So great stuff there. And then there's a, a similar chart here uh, where the title is Wages for Jobs Requiring These Skills. So what about wage growth, Jeanette?
3: Yeah, so that you see is a similar trend, right? Where the jobs that require you to have high math or high STEM skills and excellent social skills, the wages for those positions are increasing way more than the other types of jobs, right? Mm-hmm. So you can see that blue line where there's been a 26% increase in the salary for these positions that require high math and high social skills, right? That's incredible. And then if you compare that to the positions that are low social skills, but high math, they've only increased by 5.9%. Yeah. So it's so much less and so much lower. So there's those jobs are not as, there's not as many of them that are open and you're going to get paid less. So mm-hmm. it's really important to like use and leverage the communication skills that you do have so that you can get into these positions where you're combining your skills and getting paid more, it's just better. <laughs> yeah,
2: no, I agree. And I, what the key takeaway here is, is that whether it was high social high math or high social low math, it was about 26% increase. So what you can take away here is that the math didn't really matter. It's if it was high, a high social position, there was a 20, about a 20 six percent increase in wages. That's how important it is. And so, again, especially for PhDs, you have the PhD. You have that rubber stamp of having technical skills or being able to learn the technical skills. And we hear that over and over. Do you have the transferable skills, the communication skills, the social skills to function on a team without being the awkward person in the corner? You do. You just It's just an active decision that you have to make to, to not be that person and to be the social person. It doesn't mean, again, you have to be Mr. Popular or Mrs. Popular or any other you know kind of – a fake person, you just have to realize that communicating effectively is important and you have to do it, make a decision to do it. That's really the takeaway here. So last figure, Jeanette, we're looking at uh, horizontal bar graphs here. What do employers want in a new hire? Mostly good speaking skills, that's the title. Um, And what we're looking at here is very important skills for recent graduates uh, we are hiring and dark blue is business executives Uh, What their feedback is and then light blue is hiring managers what their feedback is and the different categories are able to effectively communicate orally critical thinking analytical reasoning. Ethical judgment and decision making able to work effectively in teams able to work independently self motivated able to communicate can apply knowledge and skills to real world settings. What are the trends that matter here.
3: Um, Yeah, so I think my big takeaway from this one is that like all of these skills sort of matter a lot, (laughs) right? Right? So you really need to have and be presenting the various sides of yourself in your job search, right? On your resume and in your interview, make sure you show that you can do different things. But it's really clear that um, the ability to communicate effectively orally was the most important, right? 90% of those hiring managers said that that's what they want. That's what's so important is that you can communicate well when you speak Um, and then another, the other ones that were pretty high up there with 87% of those hiring managers saying that they're very important were um, ethical judgment and decision-making, which I think as PhDs, we stress over that way more than most people do. We Mm. realize those ethical like considerations are just really important in academia. So we know how to think like that. And then um, working effectively in teams, which we saw Mm. before, and then the very last one I really like is the ability to apply knowledge and skills to your real-world setting. And yeah. so this is something that we talk about a lot with resumes and making sure that they're results oriented. Right? So you're showing that your skills that you have can apply to their company. Yes. In a very specific way. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I love that right for PhDs cuz we know that we're usually being trained on just generating knowledge, right? Not applying it very little. That's translational. So a big step you have to make, and something you'll get asked about a lot on interviews, etc., is how can you take what you've done in academia and use it to help us? Like whether it's taking your knowledge and turning it into a product, or leveraging that knowledge to make their product better, to help them sell their product, etc. And so that that is a crucial one. And yeah, oral communication. Think about it. With all of the uh, with technology and bots and automation, the written. Piece right with Siri on your phone, whatever it is, right? The, the written communication I think will go down over time, but the ability to speak orally effectively will not, and really has not since what? I mean, ancient philosophers have uh, have debated, right? I mean, it's it's going to be valuable forever because it's uniquely human, and I don't want to get into like an AI argument here, but I think it'll be the last to go. So. Practice your oral, oral communication skills. This is very important. If you're in a lab by yourself all day long and you say about hundred words per week, we've actually had somebody say that to us. That's that's not a lie. Um, if that's you, go out, practice talking, right? Practice presenting. Join a Toastmasters. It is uh, do
3: some informational interviews.
2: Do some informational interviews. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. We have an ebook on that. Informational <laughs> interviews for free. So check that out. And uh, Jeanette, thank you very much. Good to see you. Yeah, your thank bow time. you. Have a great day. Okay, so we're going to move forward now with our first interview. I'm very excited to bring on Crystal Dilworth. I'm going to go over her bio here, and we're really, really excited to have her on because she has a PhD in molecular neuroscience from Caltech. She is the co-founder of the Nerd Brigade. What a great name. Um, An organization uh, of award-winning science communications and edutainers, I've never heard that word, I love it, edutainers working to diversify the face of science in mainstream media worldwide. Um, Her career in science communication has launched with the delivery of a TEDx talk called The Myth of the Scientist and her casting in the PhD movie and the PhD movie 2, still in grad school. I haven't seen these. I'll have to check them out. These projects provided a visible platform from which she continues to be a vocal advocate for STEM literacy and gender equity and inclusion. As a consultant, Crystal works with clients across all fields to break down barriers presented by technical jargon. I love it. We talk a lot about this, right? Uh, She especially enjoys working with early stage startup founders to facilitate dialogue, build consensus, and ultimately create accurate and effective communication strategies involving science technology engineering and math also known as stem and i'm going to show crystal i'm going to show your linkedin before i bring you on here i want to keep keep the build up going so this is crystal's linkedin page you can go here connect with her um i need to connect with her as well and you can check out her page uh, i think we have a, a website too her video is in this um the summary section on our linkedin page and you can see where she's a consultant with uh, Creso Inc. Am I saying that right, Crystal?
0: Yeah, I work with Creso here in the States and then with a company called NeuroPower in Brisbane, Australia.
2: NeuroPower, I love all of these names. NeuroPower, Nerd Brigade. Yeah. So great to have you on, thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Where are you located?
0: I'm in San Francisco right now. I live Mm -hmm. in the Los Angeles area and um, pretty much airports around the world.
2: Nice. That's yeah. uh, that can be fun. I mean, sometimes you know, for a, a period of time, the recycled air can uh, you can get used to that and enjoy You're the a travel.
0: Hopeless travel addict. Like if I if I've been home for two weeks, I start to worry that I'm never going to get on a plane again.
2: <laughs> Am I stuck here forever? Ah! Yeah, that's how I felt in grad school. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> how did you? Uh, so my first question is: You used to be a professional dancer, yes? Yes. So yep. how did you make the decision to go from that career? to being a scientist? Slightly different, most would say.
0: Well, I cheated a little. I was a professional modern dancer with a bachelor's degree in biochemistry.
2: Ah, okay. That's... So
0: science stayed with me as I, as I grew up because my parents were scientists and they didn't understand that artist thing. And they wanted me to be able to have a real job. <laughs> so I did the professional dancer um, in New York, You know, artist, bohemian life, um, but I wasn't fulfilled intellectually. And I started skipping my dance classes to go uptown to Columbia and sit in the chemistry department seminars. Like, can you imagine like voluntarily going to a seminar and not for the free pizza? This is what I was doing.
2: So you, so what were the different sides of you or the different needs that you had that were being filled by dance versus science?
0: I mean, the, the sort of creative expression, the lyrical nature to kind of embrace movement and music and creativity was something that I always had. I was a very theatrical kid. I subjected my parents and family to multiple um, re- one-woman one shows and reenactments. This was like just part of who I was. Um, but my parents wanted to develop the intellectual side um, very, very early. I was homeschooled. Um, So I was very accelerated. I started junior college when I was 11. Um, I just didn't know that that wasn't a thing that everybody else did because I had a group of four other really accelerated homeschooled kids and there was all of us with our little backpacks and the junior college and we just sort of thought that was normal. So I was always balancing art, science, art and
2: science.
0: Um, And finally, I think that life of being just a dancer where you're told what to do Um, you are a vessel for somebody else's creative, you know, impulses, be the choreographer or the director. Um, And you're not thought to be educated or, you know, have Mm. thoughts to yourself. So there's only so many times you can hear things that you know are wrong um, about nutrition or physiology or things like that. And you're just kind of like, I need to go somewhere where people understand me. And of course, that's Columbia University's chemistry department.
2: Of course. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. So what, what I, what I love about this, and for those of you listening or watching and you're thinking, okay, I'm not a dancer. I can't relate to this. I guarantee you there's some form of creative expression that you're engaging in right now. And maybe it's a hobby, right? Maybe you go somewhere and meet with friends to do X, Y, Z. Maybe you're a part of a, a fiction book club, right? Maybe you like, I, uh, I had a, someone that was in my graduate school entering class that liked to paint, right? Something like that. Maybe just writing. Even if you're writing about science, it's a form of creative expression because you're telling a story. This is a very valuable skill set. And before we dig into that, I do want to hear about what do you do now, Crystal? What 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 is this, what is consulting, right? It can it seems elusive. Can you elaborate?
0: I would love to elaborate. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a step back and then I promise you that we'll get there. When I talk to the senior undergrads at Caltech that are thinking about applying for graduate school, I tell them that the most important thing that they can do is have something that's not related to their work that they continue doing and to make sure that wherever they choose to go, they can find that, be it a dance studio, a tennis court or whatever. Because when their research fails, not if, when, because we've all been there, right? Mm-hmm. They, I don't want them to feel like their life has failed. Mm. They don't have anything else. And so I did that wrong. I started grad school thinking I was divorcing performing arts, I was going to be the best scientist I could ever be. That lasted for about two and a half years. And then the PhD movie came along and changed my life because I found that performing arts bit. And in doing Mm. that, I started choreographing musicals at Caltech. So scientists and engineers that have never danced, probably don't sing, Some of them have never been on stage before and they come to do this thing because it's completely different from their daily work. Mm. And I could talk to both sides. So I have the really artsy actor, director on one side. He speaks in word clouds. There's no structure. It's very conceptual and woo woo. And you have Caltech and NASA scientists and engineers on the other side who respond to that lack of structure with fear, with anger, and with panic. And so even though I was the choreographer, my real role was to take the crazy, turn it into, translate it into structure and give it to the scientists and engineers and then to take their concerns back and to mold it into a more fluid experimental language that our actor director could say, oh, they're engaging with me on the creative process. Mm. This is exactly what I do in consulting.
2: And, and let, me, let me make this practical for those of you listening. The crazy director that she's talking about hiring managers okay a lot of them are crazy the recruiters whatever and if you've ever sat and talked to a hiring manager on a phone screen whatever and they're talking about the weather and telling you this story about what they did that day and you're like you're as a phd you're like what are the facts like just what result what do you want me to say what's the answer what's the question right you have to be able to deal with that and you have to be able to bridge that gap on your own when you can't have you know a crystal with you on the phone or during the interview but you can learn that from from a crystal you can learn that by practice, right? So we people, so these, sci- these scientists, these people from Caltech, how would you train them to be able to A, deal, I would say, it's, you know, for me, it's not, yeah, anger is probably the right word. It's, it's just like impatience. How would you train them to deal with that and to process this nonsense word cloud into something that made logical sense for them? Um, or how would you help them understand it? How would, you, how would you bridge that gap?
0: Part of it is reframing the problem. Because they've come to rehearsal, thinking, "You're the director, you know what's going on, mm-hmm. and I'm learning, and you're going to tell me what to do." Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not what the arts is. It's a collaborative and creative process. So upskilling really quickly, um, to a point where they're able to contribute collaboratively, they understand the space. So helping them map the space. This is what the director is thinking about and the things that he's managing. These are really smart people. They manage projects for NASA. They've put robots on other planets. So if you tell them all the different levers and all the different things that they can start thinking about, they'll have ideas. And making sure that those ideas are heard um, is really the first step to them feeling competent in the space. And that reduces the emotional reactivity.
2: So you you basically empower them and you give them a sense of ownership over the process, right? So they're not thinking that they're doing something wrong or they're Incompetent or waiting, whatever. So you basically you just provide clarity and you provide ownership,
0: and they know where the boundaries are and where they aren't. So um, in a similar way, if I'm working with a highly technical startup founder that is incredibly uh, nervous or resistant to working with the PR or marketing firm, Mm. they're VC. That you know, their major funder has told them, "Hey, you're going to work with this firm." They see a bunch of slick, fast-talking guys in suits that don't know anything about their technical product. This is their baby that's being dressed up like a clown and put out on a stage to tap dance, and they're very, very emotional <laughs> about a
2: dancing that. bear, dancing. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. So if if you can if you can uh, define a few parameters, a few ways that they could communicate, or a few uh, flags that they can put in the sand to be like, this isn't moving and this isn't moving. And we respect that. Now let's talk about this creative space in between. They feel a little bit protected by the structure.
2: So how can we apply that to a, like a, a job searcher or an industry career? Cause you have a lot of people with, you know, your background, STEM PhD, and they're going in and they feel like they are that dancing bear, right? Where they have to, okay, now I got to put on this face and be nice and be more patient with all this stuff. I don't care about I got go to do these networking events, et cetera. How do you put in a framework that allows them to stay true to who they are, right? Plant those flags, like you say, what's the space in between in this case? How, how would you frame it?
0: I think that, uh, well, it's the theme of the episode. So I'm going to stick with the answer on the communications side. Mm. Um, things that we are not trained to do in grad school, manage people, manage money, mm. uh, bear the burden of communicating impact and value of our work things that we will be asked to do in the workplace as PhDs, manage people, manage money, bear the burden of communicating the impact and the value of the things that we do. And so that's the first skill yeah. um, that we really need to kind of, to, to learn. And sometimes it's trial and error, but taking the time to think, if I'm, not, if I'm not making my point correctly, what does the other person need from me? And even asking them, I feel like I'm not actually able to get the point across to you. Where are you struggling? And engaging with them on a human level instead of the sort of adversarial or even transactional level that you would have if you were giving a professional academic talk. Everybody's sort of in the same level. And now we're going like this. That's not the same. You don't understand business process and they don't understand the six years of whatever it is you did. So you both have to find common ground and accepting that going into the interaction, I think is the first step.
2: So how can you, how can you set the, the tone for that before you have the conversation or before you even go on an interview with somebody? Like what kind of prompts could you give them if you sense that maybe an interview is going south and they're starting to see you as just like a lab rat or a technical person? How can you, what are some key phrases you could use to open up the dialogue with the person on the other side of the table?
0: I always make sure to ask people related questions. So on the, um, I actually want to answer that in two ways. So on the technical side, I sort of think, what are the questions that my family would have at the Thanksgiving table about my work? Because that might be the starting Mm. point for the hiring manager. Um, you know, so I had a friend that studied crater formation on the moon. And she always hated going home for Thanksgiving because people were asking her about exoplanets, dark matter, all of these other crazy things. And her first step to her family was like, actually, I only study our moon <laughs> and narrowing, and narrowing that down. And she can talk about how her research applied to these other things, but she was an expert in that one thing.
2: And they're like, oh, just the moon. Okay.
0: It <laughs> <laughs> was well, really cool. Right. You start to talk and tell lots of stories about the moon right. um, and bring other people on board with the things that you've been working on. And that's the thing, the narrative around people. So how has your work touched people? Um, My expertise is in the molecular basis of nicotine dependence. I'm a fluorescence microscopist. I shoot lasers at stuff that glow in the dark and I take pictures of them. Mm. Um, How can that apply to people? Well, smoking is the number one cause of preventable death in the world. So starting from that place, and then moving back to the single atom substitution and the single subunit of the single pentameric receptor that's expressed in a very, very small subset of brain regions. Like, let's, you know, yes. so tell I me love why that. I care first.
2: Yeah, and, and so what Crystal's very, very intelligently talking about is pitching yourself, like pitching your idea what you do and you start at a much higher level, right? Get them engaged with a uh, high-level connection that's interesting, shooting lasers at you know, antibodies, whatever it is, right? Fluorochromes, et cetera. That's like, oh, wow, that sounds cool. I know what lasers are. And then there's this word I kind of know from the context. Don't jump into the weeds, which is what most of us do as PhDs, even on our resumes, right? Don't jump into the weeds of what you do about the single receptors, et cetera. You know, they're gonna go to sleep. But if you start high-level, dig in. That's, a, that's a, a much better pathway to follow, especially on an interview with a hiring manager who doesn't have a PhD.
0: I've been out of grad school for a long time, for five years now. I just had my fifth doctor Doctorversary, um, and I am still impressed about how much I need to take a step back and say, okay, actually, we need to talk about this concept in order to understand what I want to talk about. I still get caught up with that, even mm. though I'm working in that space every day.
2: Doctor Doctorversary, I never heard of that. That's great. So let me talk a little bit more about what you do. So you have this background in... Neuroscience, right? Molecular neuroscience, and now you're collaborating on communication, behavioral type projects, etc. Um, what allows you to do that? What are the key transferable skills that you got, especially with your STEM background or your dancing background, etc., that have allowed you to switch gears, that have allowed you to jump into different realms and apply your knowledge anywhere to learn anything?
0: I I, wa- I want this answer to be really profound. But Go it's, it's gonna be disappointingly plebeian. I think that um, one, the PhD, and the PhD from Caltech gets me in the door. When you're talking to a CEO of one of, you know, a major international company, Fortune 500 company, they wanna know that they're worth the attention of one of the top minds, and that's how my consulting firm would bill me. So I've done nothing except graduate, and there's a dollar value. On that like just keep that in mind for all of you out there I'm mm-hmm. getting my 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 project manager in the door because he can say I've got a top, top neuroscientist on my team that's that's what my degree is doing I even open my mouth um, and then you also can get them to listen a little bit better so I'm always brought in when there's highly technical people CEOs usually an engineer um, and a business process uh, mismatch Yes. So the technical people will listen to me because I'm one of them right. and the suits will listen to me because I'm smarter than them. They, that's what they think and they're afraid of that. So we have to be very careful to negotiate that. Um, and then you've got everyone's attention and you can start to do some real work and you can start to get them to trust to, talking to each other is going to be okay. And that's in consulting. It's really about facilitating the experts, which is not you, in finding the right answer. Sometimes they just need you to be in the room.
2: Yeah. And I, and I love that because for most of you listening, you don't see your PhD in that way. Cause again, you're surrounded by other PhDs. You know, there's this person down the hall that has more publications than you. We're always thinking of the next level that we don't have yet because we're very driven people, but you have to realize how valuable your PhD is. And yeah, it's a rubber stamp in a sense, because they see that degree and they're like, okay, instant credibility, but there's a lot that went into that. Right. So don't, discount everything that you've done. You know, remember your value as a PhD. We always talk about that. That is incredibly valuable, not just to technical people, but also to, uh, as, as Crystal says, the suits in the room too. Um, you have the ability to learn things very, very quickly. And you're right, that might intimidate some people or it might make them have certain pre, mis, uh, uh, pre, you know, uh, preconceptions of you that are incorrect. Uh, you just need to navigate that but always realize that it is a strength. I think that's the key here.
0: And we're um, working with systems and process in business as a consultant, you work with systems and processes. As a biologist, what did I work with? Systems and processes.
2: Protocols, yeah.
0: Yeah, protocols. It's, you know, and there's the added layer of the social component. I didn't work with uh, an animal model. Um, so I didn't have that in my PhD. So it's something that I'm, I'm learning with the with the human animal model, um, as opposed to the mice that lived, you know, down there. but one thing I'm really hoping that your audience will start to appreciate is that perceived value is everything. And Mm. as PhDs going out into the workforce and not staying in academia, we are the cockroaches. We are going to survive. Because the future of work is leading to automation. It's leading to people being replaced by robots and computers that can do that single thing better, faster, cheaper than they can. And the people that are going to survive that transition are able to solve complex problems, and have theory of mind, and so they can shift and motivate large groups of people to a particular goal or direction.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I, I used to talk a lot about three skills that'll be around, right, in, in 10 years or 20 years, and, and we, we just saw a lot of them in, on the Show Me the Data section from Crystal 2. You know, uh, problem solving, obviously, like decision-making. You gotta make the decision for the computer in advance when you program it, right? Or you got to set up the ability for it to make certain types of decisions that you write. Not to get, again, too much into AI here, but decision making is huge, and that's tied to problem solving. And problem solving really is there's this initiative component, this action taking component, like the ability to initiate something, initiate yourself, large groups of people, powerful, important. And then oral communication. You know, there's different theories on if oral communication, of course, you know, maybe there'll be robots that can talk, but your ability to speak it's such a powerful influencer and right now where are they at with that they can't even really analyze like pitch or vocal tones very well uh in terms of, of robotics it's still a very powerful thing so speaking face to face to a person very very important or you know almost face to face like we are now crystal great stuff i really appreciate you being on here where, where can we learn more about you and your work
0: I'm on social media. So I'm at polycrystal HD because uh, it's PhD. And I think that people are multifaceted humans and we should sort of engage in the celebration of all of those money facets. So polycrystal HD on Twitter and on Instagram. So I'm usually on planes. You'll see usually a selfie when I'm on a plane and some stuff from work
2: fantastic and i think so polycrystal hd let me did i find it right here is this it for twitter that's me yep here we go fantastic so you can check out polycrystal hd right so it's crystal's twitter page as well as instagram we'll put those in the chat boxes crystal thank you very much for your time thank you so much for having
1: me
2: our next guest who i see is on i'm going to introduce him first though special introduction haven't seen him in ages, is Jack O'Sullivan. He completed his PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology at the University College Dublin. His career in sales and business development began with his role as a training and sales specialist in the nonprofit sector. Um, there he transitioned to an area sales manager at Triple Red. He's worked with us on Team Cheeky, and now he's in a sales executive to training specialist role in business de- and business development executive as well. So. This is another example of a PhD with a STEM background who has transitioned into a role that's required complex communication skills, training, support, sales skills, a lot of skills that at first you know, blush, you would think that a PhD doesn't have. Um, in addition to rock climbing, I didn't even know that, Jack. Jack's passions include connecting with people and getting his customers the right cutting edge products to support their research goals. He is currently the sales manager for StratEch Stratec Scientific uh, one of the leading suppliers of antibodies and reagents in the U.K. And before we bring him on, I want to show you his LinkedIn profile. Go connect with Jack. Uh, fantastic. Fantastic person overall. Very engaging. Really excited to have him on. This is his LinkedIn profile. And you can connect with him here. Jack, how are you? Hi, Isaiah.
1: Well, firstly, how am I going to follow that? Wow. Yeah, great, Crystal right? made me want to be in, in her job. So. Yeah, uh, it's
2: great. Great, uh, uh, <laughs> great interview. Yeah. Where are you right now?
1: Yeah, so sorry about the terrible video quality and no, every, the bad okay. lighting, everything. It's lovely hotel room lighting. I'm in the, the, the wilds of Cambridgeshire um, at the moment. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's the, it's the perk of the job, with sales. You know, sometimes you get to travel around. Sometimes it's a lot of fun. Um, how much traveling is really, really depends on what, what your territory is, but at the moment, yeah, I'm really out, of, out, out and about. So uh, you have to give me the hotel room internet. <laughs>
2: Cambridge Cottage somewhere.
1: Cambridgeshire, the middle of nowhere. Well, thanks for making
2: time. Uh, you know, I wanted to jump right in with you, Jack, and talk about you know, a skill that you have really mastered in, in the realm of communication, understanding other people's problems, and then coming up with solutions to those problems. How important has that been to getting hired in industry and in your career development?
1: Yeah, I think um, we we know that as PhDs, we're good at troubleshooting. We say, oh, yeah, I'm great at um, working through problems. But I don't think you really know. Mm-hmm. I don't think people understand that most people in, who aren't PhDs come across a problem. And they go, oh, it's a problem. And they escalate it, right? Because in, in, in normal business you escalate up you go oh what do I do N- next person in the chain oh I don't know what do you do next person in the chain and they don't know how to get in and get stuck in and really fix things mm. so uh, what I notice with PhDs and I've seen this because I've worked in sales teams with you know lots of you know, maybe half PhDs and half not PhDs and the PhDs always go oh when this occurs I usually do this this this, this and this so and and the other sales people go oh I normally just get stuck and call someone right so I think yes. your creative thinking process. And I really, what really resonated. I wrote some notes here, because Crystal talks a lot about the creative, Mm. dynamic sort of way that PhDs are. And I thought really was amazing, because I think that sales is, and communication is just like that as well. It's all about, she said, like, the technical people will listen, and the suits will listen. That's exactly what sales is. Um, Facilitating the experts and finding the right expert, uh, the right answer, that's exactly what sales is. Sometimes people just need you to be in the room. That's exactly what sales is. I was really impressed because it is a very creative troubleshooting. you like to really get stuck into the problems, solve people's problems. That's basically what sales is. I think people have this misconception. Sales is all about, you know, going out, go buy this thing when really it's actually about solving problems.
2: Yeah. And so a, a couple of great
1: takeaways there,
2: right? Again, problem solving. Think about it more as, you know, the initiative and having the comfortableness with autonomy to take care and troubleshoot a problem on your own and just fix it. I think the other takeaway is is that as a PhD, you can be seen as valuable, not just to technical people, but to other types of people. And and even if it's not a pure sales position, all of the new positions that are coming out for PhDs that are very popular, whether it's technical, sales, Mm -hmm. support, liaison, we mentioned medical science liaison, application scientist, it's about bridging that communication gap, you know, speaking nerd and normal person, how, how sometimes we say it. So Jack, what, how do you approach speaking to a technical person, right? Because you're bridging that gap. How do you approach speaking to a technical person differently than speaking to a non-technical, another salesperson or director or manager? Um, what are some of the differences that you notice? I guess overall, right? There's always going to be, it's going to be different based on each individual,
1: but what are some of the trends that you see? The trends between tactical Technical, I'm prepared with detail. So a lot of a meeting happens before the meeting, right? So a lot of, it's the same with your interview, right? A lot of your interview happens before your interview. You research a company, I research the person, I research what they're doing. I try anticipate what kind of questions they're gonna have. Technical will always be detail. Um, Technical will always want to get into the nitty gritty and really start talking about those aspects. and then uh, everyone else might have more general questions, you know, well, how much is it going to cost? When can you get it to me? Um, you know, the, they might have more general, they might just buy something because they like me, right. They might just want to get the an interest in me. The same actually goes for a technical person. Mm. So actually what you talk about all the time, Isaiah, is the key key point, emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence brings you a lot, a lot of the way here. You can tell as you're speaking to the technical person, have I said something that mm. is just, Got a red flag. Yeah. Uh, do uh, you need to pay attention to that? And that yeah. kind of feeds into another misconception people have about sales, which is that it's all for extroverts. oh extroverts have to go, um, you know, to do sales. You got to be really extroverted. Really... I know I'm extrovert, guys. I know, I know, I am. But not some of the best salespeople I have ever worked with ever are massive introverts. Are you a massive introvert? Introvert. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, uh, you know, and it's really because it just comes down to
2: how you get your energy. If other people energize you, extrovert. If you're energized when you're not around people, introvert. But with, especially with technology today, you have to be able to uh, communicate and solve problems online and in person, right? And what I think, you know, Jack is doing a great job of is showing that you have all these transferable skills already. And we talk about noticing your audience, being sensitive to your audience, understanding them. you know Emotional intelligence, EQ, is like this buzzword that just means intelligence. The ability to use your focus and to put that focus on the right things. The other person, are they triggered by something that you said? Or are you just like paying attention to what you're saying and not focused on your audience at all? As PhDs, we can do that. We get in our own head, right? And then we just focus on our purpose, what we're trying to get across. We don't think about how our audience is responding. Just shift that focus and you can do
1: it because you're all intelligent people. Yeah, and I'd love to ask Chad a question at this point. What do you think is the number one? I actually literally just did this with the sales team. I asked them, what do you think the number one trait of a salesperson is? Please put it in chat. No wrong answers, right? But there's totally a right answer.
2: And while you do that, let me tell you two things that Jack has done that maybe you didn't notice. And one of the reasons he's an effective communicator he has turned this conversation back on me and on the audience several times, right? Have you noticed that? Like instead of just saying what to do or, or how you should prepare or, or his insights, he's asked me about myself two or three times, right? He's asked you to now give your ideas and what you are thinking. And this is crucial when you're communicating because you can, uh, it helps you understand what the other person's taking in. It also helps you tie in the other person and engage them uh, both intellectually and emotionally in the conversation, which is what you want. So you can't, you can't just talk at people, you have to involve them. And, and this is something
1: Jack does very well. So some answers are coming in, Jack, what do you think? Well, Natania's breaking my heart, breaking my heart here. She said that the number one skill is pushiness and it's another really bad misconception. And actually I spend a lot of time with my sales team right now saying it's really important to read the signs when you need to back off, right? Yeah. Um, I I think pushiness is every bad salesperson you've ever met. If you ever feel like someone's being pushy, it's a a bad sign. That's someone without emotional intelligence. That's someone who's not really doing it. Oh, Ben has the answer. Active listening. Thank you, Ben. That is exactly it. There was lots of really good um, answers. Chris, I like trust building, Um, customer needs, problem solving. Yes, very important. Um, Social skills. I don't think you need social skills sometimes. I tell you some stories about some... Salespeople who are excellent without social skills, but excellent follow-up, excellent technical skills. Um, <laughs> Natalia, don't worry, my heart is mended already. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, active listening. Active listening is massive. This is why introverts can be salespeople, because the very best salesperson, one of, well, one of the best salespeople I ever met, met, worked with, she just said nothing at meetings. Mm. And what happens when you say nothing?
2: People talk, they fill the space.
1: I tell you the problems what you're doing right now <laughs> exactly you you can't help but talk because you want to fill the space right so you the active listening is um and being being introverted they're they're all massive pros what you should want to do if you want to be a salesperson is you should you have to do someone said drive and motivation it is important you do actually have to want to be in sales you want to have to sell a product what helps me and what i've always done and i think helps most phds is i say choose a product that you truly, truly believe in, a product or service or company. And Mm. as long as you really believe, you can push really hard for that thing. You can um, do what's needed and to make a sale because you know that this is right for the customer. You know this is the best thing. So I I think that really helped me give the conviction to to know that what I'm doing has purpose because that's always Mm. been really important to me, to have purpose, to have impact. And that's why I left Academia. Because I felt like I couldn't make an impact anymore. None of my stuff was being published well enough or going anywhere, right? And that Mm -hmm. is why I joined sales. Now, I sell things that if people didn't know, they wouldn't be able to do these experiments. If I didn't sell it to pharma, they wouldn't be able to make this happen, right? I feel like I make things happen now. And that's what I love about my job.
2: And, And the key here is that you're responsible for that. It's active. You find the meaning in what you do, right? You don't fake it, but you literally find things that are aligned with what you're doing on the practical end is aligned to the reason why behind it, right? What you're doing can have an impact and it can be in sales, it can be in a liaison position, it can be an applications position, any communication position and any position requires that that requires communication, which is all of them. So Jack, really great insights. I I appreciate you joining us from cambridgeshire It sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings.
1: but <laughs> It is probably out of Lord of the Rings. I didn't even know. <laughs> Fantastic. But, uh, so- no, no problem. It's my pleasure. And uh, I, hope, I hope it makes people think because Cheeky Scientist is what sort of helped me decide I wanted to be in sales. I don't know if I can tell a really quick story about my first sales. Yeah, let's interview. do it. So um, my very first interview for sales, a um, sales position was when I was just about to finish my postdoc. I really i didn't really know whether i wanted to do sales or not i hadn't joined cheeky scientists okay and i'd gotten right to the final end it was just me and one other candidate and the person said to me she said if you do a great presentation tomorrow you have got the job and i went yeah right i was like so pumped went into this interview and i flopped the presentation i completely messed it up i just said all the wrong things. i didn't go technical i thought about it too much i tried to go salesy or some other thing I just didn't do what was really authentically me and, and I didn't speak to the product I just flubbed it right I got totally in my head right and I ne- never forgot and then I went on and then did like a training position right because I had to like overdo it I was like I love presenting I love doing that way Why do I do that and now right so I went into my interview for this new this this job um final rant who's sitting at the table the same guy from that very first interview, I swear. Wow. Yeah, and I walked in, and I already knew he was there because I'm a cheeky scientist, right? And I've checked out, and I've done my research. And I said, I remember you. you. You probably don't remember me, but I'll never forget you. And he said, what? I said, I did the worst presentation of my life in front of you, and I said, it's not going to be like that today. I threw the presentation away. There we go.
2: Fantastic. So yeah. There
1: go. I just, my point was that, guys, if you've had a bad interview, if things have gone wrong, you can still succeed. Um, we've all had bad days. We've all had bad... Um, interviews, but uh, things can make go 360, right? So uh, just don't forget and uh, keep working on the what the association plan is. I mean, there was parts that I got stuck on, and then things move very, very quickly. I got hired in two weeks once I started committing to the to the plan really properly. Um, so that can happen for you. Fantastic! Thank you, Jack. Great takeaway. Take care, guys. <laughs>
2: This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show. Thank you for tuning in, and remember to join us for our next live show, which we stream on our Facebook page as well as our YouTube page, every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just go to facebook.com forward slash mycheekyscientist to watch us live. Or go to our Cheeky Scientist YouTube page again every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you want to learn more about Cheeky Scientist, you can go to CheekyScientist.com. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional.